Well, it's good to see you all today, um, and happy Independence Day. Um, just if we do have any kind of armed, what did, I was going to say armed forces. <laughs> That's what I was going to say. But if we have any military in the house, I know Daryl and I were talking yesterday about the cost, really, of freedom. And that as much as, as a nation, we established independence, there's been a lot of things that have transpired between now and then that have actually, we've had to continue to fight for freedom. And there's people that have established a, a life, their entire life is really on behalf of our nation and taking a stand in the military. And so it's one of those things that we just need to remember to honor and we all enjoy freedom. And it's that heart of gratitude of understanding it comes at a cost. And there are people paying that price, and so we're grateful for those people. This Friday, awesome! That's awesome! Yeah, awesome. Well, thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, if you want to turn with me to Romans. We're going to cover about three or four passages of scripture, but we're going to most, look most closely at Romans. Um, and as you know, we are doing the Heart of Worship series during the month of July. Um, I am not a musician. I am not a singer. In fact, you don't want me to sing. Uh, <laughs> but the issue of worship, as we're going to see today from the Word of God, is really a heart issue. So regardless of our musical ability, regardless of... Um, even I know that I know some very, very um, worshipful people that in their life they love the presence of God and they love to worship, but they actually, the worship experience as far as music and sound and loud noise is actually not anything that even like appeals to them. So it's not even an issue of a song being sung, um, but it's the heart posture, and that's what we're going to look at today. Um, if any of you are not aware or maybe not even mindful of, this passage of scripture that we're going to look at, I honestly believe that it diagnoses and actually looks at the crisis in our nation, and it's an issue of worship. It truly is an issue of worship. We can stand perplexed about kind of politics and the church and what's the answer for the church, because if you're not aware, you could probably just look statistically, even the church is in decline. It's not standing in its rightful place of glory and honor. And it really is an issue of worship. And we're going to see that from the word of God today. So if you want to turn with me to Romans chapter 1. Verse 18 begins with, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of, uh, and of right, unrighteousness of men, who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Verse 19, Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made, even by his eternal power in Godhead, so that they are without excuse. This, we haven't even gotten to like our main text yet, but just as a precursor, if you study this, theologians basically are saying that what is being declared here is that even, even people groups and places in the earth where the name of Jesus has not been uttered, that the gospel has never been preached, that what, what Paul is saying here, he's speaking about creation declares who he is. He actually uses the language there without excuse because he's revealed in creation. And what these, if you really study this, this passage of scripture, the understanding is the mind and the heart of man is created to perceive God. 
to have an awareness of God, and he's declared all around us. I mean, what he's basically saying is God has made himself manifest and evident. He actually uses the word, they are without excuse. And then moving on to verse 21, because although they knew God, if you like to write in your Bible like I do, (laughs) key word here, we're going to look at the word new, because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God. So they had a knowledge of God, but they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man, and the birds and the, uh, of the birds and the four-footed animals and the creeping things. Therefore, God also gave them up to their uncleanness and the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies amongst themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And here's the key word, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them over to their vile passions, for even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also the men leaving the natural use of a woman burned in lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error which was due. And even as they did did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-minded, they are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, and unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who knowing the righteous judgment of God that those who practice such things are deserving of death not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. That was a long passage of scripture. And I also understand that for me, and I just want to say out of all sensitivity, I understand there's a hot topic items in our nation specifically this week, and I'm actually not going to go after anything political or governmental in this. But I actually felt like for the integrity of the word of God, you can't just pull one verse out, out of context, that we have to understand the entirety of what the word is saying. And really what this passage of scripture, what we just read, is at the end when he begins to talk about the fruit that we see manifest in culture and society, he's talking about the fruit of backbiters, haters of God, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, lovers of money, all of those things. He gives us the very root of the problem. We don't have to stand wondering. We don't have to wonder what has happened to culture and society. What has happened to mankind? He's he's diagnosed the issue. He's diagnosed the problem, and he's diagnosed it as an issue of worship. Let's go back to the very beginning here, because I I know that only one time in this passage was the actual word worship used, but it's actually, it's the explanation and the understanding of what worship is. In verse 21, Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God. To know God is to have a knowledge, to have an understanding, to be an acquaintance, and to be aware of. So even as believers in Jesus Christ, we can have a knowledge of God. 
But that does not mean that we are glorifying God with our lives. That does not mean that we are worshiping God with our lives. So it says, although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God. I love the word to glorify or to give glory. It means to praise, to exalt, to magnify, to celebrate, to honor, to hold in high regard, to render as excellent. The word glorify literally means to cause the dignity and worth of someone or something to be made manifest and acknowledged. That is literally the role that's been given and entrusted to us, is that the dignity and worth of God would be acknowledged and manifest through our lives. So not simply that we profess him as Lord, not simply that we acknowledge him as Savior, but literally our lives, they magnify, exalt, they give reverence and honor, and that we declare Our lives declare his worth of who he is. I mean, that's a weighty passage of scripture. And you know what it really even speaks to and addresses? We're going to go further through Romans. But what it speaks to and addresses, are you guys familiar in James where it's talking about faith without works? And he's basically addressing and saying, well, someone might say to you, well, I have faith, but there's no works. Or you have works, but you have no faith. And what he goes on to say is that your, your faith is justified by your works. And he addresses it by saying in James, he said that even the demons believe and they tremble. An acknowledgement of who he is is not worship. A profession of who he is and and understanding and have an acquaintance with who he is is not worship. The understanding of worship is that our lives would declare his worth, that our lives would actually give honor and reverence to him. And so the question then becomes for us as believers that we know him, but does our life honor him? Does our life declare his majesty and his greatness? If we move on in Romans 21 here, so it says, because all they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were they thankful. That's a key passage of scripture there, nor were they thankful. That word thankful literally means to have active gratitude, Active gratitude. I mean, active gratitude is not, yeah, I'm thankful. I'm thankful for my house. Thankful for my... It's having a heart that is actively meditating upon God's goodness, God's presence. It's choosing to actively look at what he has done. And even if it's a testimony in the past, even if you don't have anything to look at in the present, actively reminding yourself of his goodness, of that posture of thanksgiving. That posture of thanksgiving will will cure a thousand evils. It truly will. It truly will. It will change your heart posture. It will change the the meditations of your mind if you direct it in that place instead of whining and complaining and all the whatnots and what we don't have to the posture of meditating. It'll, It'll save your marriage, actually. I mean, a posture of thanksgiving. You can forever look at what is not happening, all of the things that you're disgruntled with, but when you intentionally choose to look at what you can rejoice over. It changes. It changes your emotional makeup. It'll make you an emotionally healthy person. I promise you. (laughs) Nor were they thankful. It's just interesting. He's talking about knowing God, but they did not glorify him as God. He could have left out this issue of thanksgiving, but he didn't because it's vital and it's key. And it's part of our heart and posture of worship that we can't worship him without a heart of gratitude. We don't worship him without a heart of gratitude. And it goes on to say, 
um, and were not thankful, but became futile in their thoughts. This is interesting. The word futile literally means to become empty in your thoughts, to become vain. Vain is just absolute, it's, it's perishing. It's not eternal. It's very temporal. It's fleeting. To become vain, to become foolish, void of truth. This word futile literally means to become void of truth. When you know him, but you're not actively glorifying him with your thoughts, with your speech, with your meditation, with your finance, with your time. When you're not living in a posture of thanksgiving, our minds become futile. It literally means become void of truth. They, they become profitless, useless, and it actually, I'm so sorry that I have to say this, but when you study the Greece, it, Greek, it literally means to be an idiot. You become an idiot. <laughs> I mean, that's a strong word. <laughs> But it shows the debased mind that we're given over to. And you know why? It's because instead of being filled with his thoughts and his wisdom, he is the author of wisdom. There is no wisdom outside of him. So we're departing from his wisdom and we're being left to our own understanding, our own thoughts and our own thinking, which is void of truth and void of wisdom. They become futile in their thoughts. Your thoughts, we all know what thoughts are. It's, it's literally kind of what you meditate, what you ponder upon, your belief system. And then it goes on to say, and their foolish hearts were darkened. The word foolish means to be without understanding, to be unintelligent, to be stupid. <laughs> These are strong words. When our hearts are darkened, it means to be covered with darkness. It means to be deprived of light. When we know him, but we don't glorify him as God, when our lives do not declare his worth, we become deprived of life, light. We depart from light. Goes on and says that they changed, oh, become, professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. This right here is speaking about pagan idolatry, saying that there is the God of heaven and earth, that he's clothed in glory and majesty and beauty, that he possesses all light and all power and all wisdom, that we've been called to have an exchange, that we've been called to have a relationship, that we've been called to behold him, that we've been called to be in conversation with him, that we've been called to be in fellowship so that who he is is literally infused and imparted to who we are, that we become more like him. And that instead of looking upon him and gazing upon him and worshiping who he is, we lower his image to the likeness of man and four-footed creatures and animals. You know what? We lower it to what we can understand. We lower it to the earthly and the carnal and the temporal. We lower it to our own image. And that's precisely what the, what the Israelites did, is they made graven images they made graven images and they chose to worship those in, instead of worshiping the true living God. And most of us today, we would say, I don't have an issue with idolatry. But the issue becomes, what is it in our lives? What we value and what has worth to us is what we give our time, our devotion, our meditation to. It's, it's really that simple. I wish I could give you a different formula. I wish I could actually make it more comfortable for you because I know that can be convicting. 
Because for some of us, it's like fashion. We're just scrolling through those blogs and reading all of that. I mean, I, I, I was hearing somebody the other day at a cookout, him and I, nobody here, we weren't with church community, but we were at a cookout and they were, somebody was listing like the things that women are supposed to have in their closet this year. And I'm thinking in my head, who made up that rule? Like, I, I don't have any of those things in my closet. I'm sinking. And then as she went on to just say something about a pencil skirt and how it doesn't fit her form, I'm thinking in my head, so you got one and it don't work for you? Because someone, like, I'm thinking how much we obsess over information that is so useless. Just buy what you like. Just buy what you like and looks good on you. And hopefully it's modest. <laughs> but this issue of, I mean, some of us, it's sports. Me. I'm sorry. I mean, my husband will watch sports. I will say he does not, he does not have an issue of idolatry with sports. Bless the Lord. <laughs> I picked one good. I picked a good one. <laughs> no, but I mean, it really is a revealer of our time and our priorities. If we're spending more time on those things than we actually spend in the place of prayer and the word and fellowship with God. Worship speaks of the issue of our affections. That's it in its simplest form. What has our affection? What has our meditation, our devotion? What are we obsessed with? I mean, honestly, can we say we're obsessed with Jesus? And that's not out of religious works or striving. That's out of a heart that has seen him and perceived him. And so the extraordinary thing is that if we're not in that place of our affections being captured by him, they can be. It's not, we can actually position ourselves. We can actually posture ourselves to encounter him so that our, so that our, that our heart, our heart. So they changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man, the birds and the four-footed animals and, and the creeping things. Therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness um, in the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies amongst themselves. Verse 25, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever and ever. Amen. Paul says that the fundamental bottom line root problem with the human race and humanity has to do with what we make of the glory of God. Even though they knew God, they did not honor him. They literally did not glorify him as God. That is the fundamental problem with the human race, that we do not acknowledge, we do not value, we do not treasure, we do not savor, we do not honor and make much of the great, greatest value in the universe, which is the glory of God. This is our wickedness, and this is our disease, and this is our greatest mutiny against God that we have a knowledge of him. But ultimately what happens is, is that when we say that we know him, but our lives do not declare his worth, it ultimately becomes, I, 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 the, a word, the word disgrace is a very strong word. But to say that we know him, but yet our hearts have not been captured by his beauty, I think instead of saying that we know him, really the, the true, truest statement would be that we haven't yet fully seen him or encountered him. There are those places where our hearts become dull, and really what it is is it's just the need to align our hearts and to see him more, more fully and more clearly. I'm going to move on to um, Matthew 15, verse 8 through 9. 
This speaks of this issue of the heart. These people draw near to me with their mouths and they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me and in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. This is speaking once again that the issue of worship is not the movement of our lips, but it's the movement of our heart. It's speaking of the affection. He says, and in vain they worship me. What does that mean? We actually see another example of this in Amos. It's Amos 5.21. I don't know how many of you guys are familiar with Amos, but um, this is actually what the prophet says. He says, I hate and I despise your feast days, and I do not savor your, your solemn assemblies. He's literally speaking about their holy, these are what they did as their holy acts of worship. They had feast days and they had solemn assemblies. Though you offer burnt offerings, though that was their, their offering of worship. In the Old Testament, though you offer me burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them, nor will I regard your fat and peace offerings. Take away from me the noise of your songs, for I will not hear the medley of your stringed instruments, but let justice roll down like water and righteousness like a mighty stream. You know what he's speaking right here? He's saying, I don't want your religious works. I don't want your songs. I don't want those things that you have. He actually says, I want righteousness and justice. If you study out those words, even the word justice literally means righteousness. They're, they're almost two pillars that are one and the same. Righteousness cannot be separated from justice, and justice cannot be, it's right standing. It's right living. It's the manifestation of who he is. And he's saying, that's what I want. He actually says, I despise <laughs> your solemn assemblies and your feasting. So how oftentimes do we offer things that are really not what he desires from us? He's actually saying, that's not what I'm looking for. I'm looking for your heart. In the Old Testament, that's actually what Isaiah declared. Rend your heart and not your garments. We're so willing to give our outward things. We're so willing to give the outward. When he's literally saying, I'm after the issue of the affection of your heart. And you know, I don't know how many of you guys have really studied Song of Solomon. It can be a little creepy sometimes for people. They start reading it and wonder what's going on there. But in Song of Solomon, it literally declares, and it's speaking about the love of God. He says, my jealousy is as cruel as the grave. Do you know what that means? It means he is so jealous for you, meaning longing for your, a relationship with you that's not superficial, that's not distracted, that's not half-hearted. If you look in the word of God, it is undeniable the theme of the bride and the bridegroom. You cannot separate the understanding of him being, being the bridegroom and us being the bride. The whole book of Jeremiah was calling and saying, I was married to you. I was devoted to you. We were married to one another and you departed from me. And he's saying, return to me. That was his call to Israel. Return to me. That even as a, a wife departs from her husband, return back to me. You know, oftentimes in the body of Christ, people think, like, it doesn't work for me. I tried that Bible. It doesn't work for me. I tried, I tried the church thing. It didn't work for me. I've heard so many people that somehow they think Christianity or Christ failed them. No, the issue is, is he said, come unto me. With all that you are, I want you married to me. And I'm going to say this, unless we are living in that kind of pursuit of wholeheartedness, it won't work for you. You'll be frustrated. You'll wonder. I've heard so many people, I don't hear the voice of God. He is no respecter of persons. He desires relationship with you. He 
longs for you. But you know what it is? When you, I actually remember being a teenager and preaching at the church that I was raised in. It, and I actually preached about Jeremiah being married to the Lord. How funny is that? But I just remember this woman came up to me afterwards. And she's like, it must be nice to be you. And I, I mean, older woman. She had like children my age. I'm like, whoa, grow up. But, um, you know, as a teenager, she goes, must be nice to you. She goes, there are those of us in the kingdom that feel like second-class citizens. How, how sad to be 50 years old. I looked right at her and I said, there are no, like almost as if somehow God put her on the outside. I'll be really honest. I mean, I definitely ministered to her heart, but I felt like saying, do you feel like you have a root of offense that keeps you from receiving the love of God? I mean, talk about a heart that just, anyway, ended up ministering to her. But how many people do that? They look at certain people and think, oh, they just hear from God so easily. Oh, they just have a desire and a passion for God. It just comes naturally. No, it absolutely does not. (laughs) We all are made of the same flesh and bones and blood and brain and eyes and, you know, all of those things. Yes, are there maybe seasons in our life where we feel the drawing of the Holy Spirit and there's a, a, a heart posture of response. But you have to know for every individual, there's the highs and there's the lows. There's the mountaintop and the valley. And you know what it is? It's in regardless of the season of your soul. Regardless of whether you're on the mountaintop right now. I say to people all the time when they're talking about what a hard like, season they're in, I'm, just, I'm like, just hold on. You're going to be on the mountaintop soon. <laughs> I know I'm going to talk to you in two months. And you're going to be like, God broke through. It changes. Life is like an ocean. Those waves come, they crash. You feel like you're being bre- buried, but then they draw back out again. <laughs> it's, no, it's no different for you than it is for any other individual. God has not picked on you. God has not labeled you or cast you out. He has not forsaken you. But I will say this. There's that place where we have to be people that posture ourselves there's a posture and a positioning of receiving from him and oftentimes when we're not hearing from him when we don't feel his presence really what it comes down to it can be an issue of distraction those are very very practical things but it also can be that in that place where we feel isolated and alone instead of just simply bringing ourselves before him do you know the word of god over and over again says present yourselves to me I don't care what you're going through. I don't care how hard it is. I don't care what sin you are struggling with. I don't care how bored and disconnected your heart is that you think I am never going to have a heart that's alive and in love with Jesus. I don't care what your perception is of yourself. I'm going to say this to you. Just keep presenting yourself before him. It's going to change everything. It'll change you from the inside out. It will rewire your mind. It will rewire your emotions. Just keep presenting yourself before him. All you have to do is get yourself in his presence. That might mean foregoing a beach day and making some time to be before him. That might mean foregoing a movie night. It might mean, but you know what that does is it postures our heart saying, I desire you. I desire you. And see, oftentimes what's happened in our modern culture of Christianity, the, the, the posture of seeking after God has become almost despised. That like to seek him is somehow works and religious striving. And, you know, I already have the fullness of Christ. No, read your Bible. 
He says, call unto me and I will answer. He, a whole psalm of da- a psalmist of David, when the, all of that he wrote was that heart of seeking and panting. He actually said the words that I am like a deer that pants for the water brooks. There was a longing in his heart. There was an aching in his heart. And we as a younger generation cannot despise the posture of seeking. Because in despising seeking or despising pursuit or despising longing or prayer or in fasting, you know what you're doing? You're placing yourself outside of the posture and the position to encounter him. You're being robbed of encounter. So don't let a religious lie of somehow, well, I'm just going to flip on this week's sitcom that I'm addicted to, and if God wants to, it'll just break in here. <laughs> it, it is. It's kind of like this, where I'm at, if he wants to, he can get to me. Now, how about he already went after you? He's already wooed your heart. You've already been provoked. And now he's saying, respond to me. This is a relationship here. This is not a one-way street. This is, I am a God that is jealous and I want your heart. I have not forsaken you. I have not denied you. I am still right here, but I am waiting for you to turn your eyes towards me. Just give me a little attention. Why do we think, you know, you are made in the image of God. Got that? You got that. Get it. Get it. Get it real deep in your heart. You're made in the image of God. And do you want to know what that means? That even as in a relationship, if you neglect someone that you're in friendship with, you neglect someone that you say that you value. It's this issue of worship right here. You can say all you want. I value you. You're important to me. I love you. I adore you. You're my savior. You're my king. I'm a Christian. (laughs) You can say all of those things. You can say that to your, your friends and those that you, but when your life declares something else. When for people that we care for, and this is why I'm saying we're made in the image of God. If you yourself start to think, okay, they say that they value me. They say that I'm their best friend, but for some reason they never are able to make time for me. It's saying something completely different. I mean, you're not an idiot. You can read the signals. It's, this, it's the same issue with worship. Although they knew God, they had an acquaintance with God, they did not glorify him. Their lives did not declare his worth. The question for us as believers is we know him, but do our lives declare his worth? How do our lives declare his worth? You know, if you were here last Sunday, you guys heard me share because I'm still, I still, when I think about it, my eyes fill up with tears. I'm, I'm physically moved in my heart and in my spirit. But when Daryl and I were away at this missions conference, I still, whenever I think about this testimony, it just ruins me. <laughs> but Daryl and I were ministering at a missions conference a couple weeks ago, and there was extraordinary speakers. Um, Alan Hood preached on the excellencies of Christ and Stephen Venable on the beauty of Jesus. And I mean, it was, and it was all a call to give their life in the hardest and darkest places in Muslim countries. And I mean, they just displayed the worth of Christ before these young missionaries and ones that they were calling to the field. And um, a young girl that we know and we're close to, she's 19 years old. She's going away for two years to a Muslim country, a very dangerous place where some of their team has already encountered a lot of difficulty. She's 19, and she just she stood up at the um, kind of in-between sessions, and she just said, you know, when I was really little, she said, I knew I wanted to be a missionary. 
She said, I knew it. I knew in my heart. And she said, but when I was little, it was, I'm going to be a missionary, and then everyone's going to read my journals <laughs> about how devoted I was to Jesus and the life I lived for Jesus. And she was just talking about her perception of being a missionary when she was younger. And she said, but now that I'm 19, she goes, I recognize, and she was looking at many of the ones that are going on the field with her. And then there was also about 400 others that they were basically trying to recruit to be missionaries. And she looked at her team and she said, but now that I'm actually a missionary and I know what I'm doing, she said, I've realized two things. She said, number one, she said, I'm going to go to a Muslim country. And she said, I'm probably going to die in a Muslim country. And she said, and honestly, no one's ever going to know my name. No one's ever going to know why or where I went for Jesus. And you know what she said? She said, but I have seen God's heart for the Muslims she said, I have seen his passion that they would know him. And she said, because I've seen him, she said, I, I'm willing to go wherever he calls me. And as long as he knows my name, that's all that matters to me. You have to understand these kids going, and then she kind of went on to exhort these young people. And she said, if you have heard this message of the worth of Jesus Christ, the majesty of Jesus Christ over these last four days, she said, but if it does not provoke you to live a life of abandon, your revelation is rubbish. She said, it means nothing. If it does not provoke a heart response. And I know those, I mean, that, that wasn't me. That was a 19-year-old girl saying those words. And as much as that might sound harsh to you, that's what the word of God says. Don't say that you know me if you aren't going to then glorify me with your life. If you're not then going to, I'm not saying you have to be at a place of 100% abandoned today. I'm not saying that you have to be able to say, yes, all of my life honors, and my, all of my life does not honor and glorify God. But I can say that my heart posture is with all that is within me, I want to honor you. I want to know that you're honored with my time. If that's, that, if that's here in Cambridge, because we're laboring in Cambridge, but I can tell you the moment that Daryl and I, if we feel as though God is saying this is where I feel like you're called, that he wants us to go to, and that would honor him and bring glory to him. As painful as that would be, I will follow him to the ends of the earth. I'm not attached to a city. I'm not attached to a, a lifestyle. I'm not attached to a title or a certain status in life. But for those of us that is, as individuals, that's where we really have to question is where is our affection? And is our affection upon Jesus? And I understand there's, for each one of us, there's places of weak devotion. There's no judgment. He loves us in our weakness. He has compassion. He's a patient God. But you know what he's saying? He's simply saying, direct and turn your heart toward me. Give your attention to me. I, I want to challenge all of the, the people that are a part of our church that if we give our time to him, our time is the most precious thing, you will be amazed and fascinated of, of what he will do, not only within you, but through your life. We're going to close out. I don't even know what time it is. Oh, okay. I got the time. Revelations 4, 6 through 11. Before the throne, there was a sea of glass like crystal, and in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures, full of eyes in front and in the back. The first living creature was like a lion, the second living creature like, like a calf, the third living creature had the face like a man, and the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. The four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within, and they did not rest day or night, saying. So if you're going to pray the Our Father, Our Father, 
in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And how is it in heaven? This is a very clear picture right here. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come, wherever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks. There we find it again. Glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever. Verse 10, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever, and they cast their crowns before the throne, saying, you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you have created all things, and by your will they they exist. This right here is a picture of worship, that they weren't simply even just offering a song. You know what it says? It says they they fell down before him, and they cast their crowns. When we worship, when we truly have a heart posture of worship, it causes our lives to be prostrate before him. Meaning abandoned. Our life is brought low. It's no longer about our existence, our will, our desire, our status, all of those things. All of a sudden, our life is brought low in worship and in adoration, and they cast their crowns. And what did they declare? They cast, basically saying, nothing has value outside of you. Nothing is valuable besides you. All I value is your presence. Can we not only declare that, but live that? Be the living embodiment of the declaration that all we value is the presence of God. We value nothing above his presence. Nothing above who he is. They cast their crowns, and what do they declare? You are worthy. They didn't just say you are worthy. They were making a declaration of his worth. That everything we have, everything we possess, our crowns were cast before him. I'm just going to close out. Actually, I'm going to read you guys um, one commentary that I was reading on the worth of Christ. This is actually what he commented. He said, we are all all happiness hunters. That's cute. We are all happiness hunters. We are all treasure seekers. And as Judas... And Mary illustrate, for those of you that don't know, Judas is who betrayed Jesus, and he did it for money. And Mary of Bethany is who poured out a, a year's worth of wages, a year's worth of costly oil at the feet of Jesus. This is the two people being referenced here. Um, Judy, uh, sorry, Judas and Mary are a contrast in treasuring. So this is speaking of the issue of what we treasure. Judas and Mary are a contrast in treasuring. They both had hedonistic motives, meaning they did have selfish motives. Neither acted out of stoic duty. Both pursued the treasure they believed would make them happy. To Mary, Jesus was the priceless pearl. For those of you guys aren't familiar, in Matthew 13, 45, it speaks of the pearl of great price that when, he, when the, the, the merchant went and found that there was a field that it was buried in, that he was literally willing to sell all because what he valued was that, was that treasure. Um, Jesus was the pearl of great price, which she loved more than anything, and she spent what was likely her greatest earthly possession to honor him. To Judas, 50 pieces of silver was a fair price for that pearl. Judas's sin wasn't that he was hunting happiness. His sin was believing that having money would make him happier than having Christ. 
O Judas, the tragedy of your value miscalculation. The pearl worth more than the entire universe sat in front of you, and all you could see were, were perfume puddles. You, you grieved the squandering of a year's wages, because this is speaking of when he and the Pharisees criticized Mary for pouring it out. You, grie- you grieved the, <clears throat> the squandering of a year's wages while you squandered infinite eternal treasure. Jesus leads all of his disciples to watershed moments like Mary's and like Judas's when the choices we make, not the words we say, reveal the treasure that we want. These moments are designed to make us count this cost. Whoever loves his life will lose it, and those that hate their life in this world will find eternal life in the next. These moments force us to choose what we really believe is gain, whether we value the pearls or the puddles of fragrance. If we choose the pearl, we hear in Judas's objections the world's appraisal of us. They watch as we pour out valuable time our intellect, our money, our youth, financial financial futures and vocations out on Jesus' feet. They watch them as puddles in in the bowls of the church, in the mission fields, in orphanages, in homes where children are raised and careers are lost, and they see it as foolish waste. Accept their rebuke, accept their rebuke, not their respect. Jesus wants you to waste your life like Mary wasted her perfume. It is, it is no true waste. It is true worship. A poured-out life of love for Jesus that counts worldly gain as loss displays how precious he really is. It preaches to a bewildered, dis- disdained world that Christ is gain, and the real waste is gaining the world's perfumes while losing one's soul in the process. You know, I love where he talks about the watershed moment where Christ will lead us, and ultimately it, it reveals what we treasure. And that's really what the issue of worship is. It's, a, it's not only the declaration of our, our, our mouths and our words, but it's the declaration of with our life that he is what we treasure. He is what we adore. And I want us to close out with a word of prayer. If you want to stand to your feet, I want to pray for us as a community, this word to glorify, that literally means that our lives would manifest his worth. I want the Holy Spirit just even to speak to us specifically areas where we can posture our heart before him in a greater posture of worship. How many of you guys want a greater posture of worship in your life? That you value and you treasure him above all else. I get it. It doesn't mean that all of us are spending 24 hours a day in the prayer room. That's not what my life looks like at all, especially being a mother and involved with several things in several areas of life. But I can say this, what, what is the greatest revealer of my heart is where I make room and make space and make time to encounter him. And I just want to encourage us today that even if our heart, even if in your heart you know that the presence of God is not what you have valued above all else, there is no condemnation, there is no shame. To be very honest with you, I think that is more the norm in our society. And it's actually why the state of the church, I actually, it's interesting, one of these, these words specifically speaks about, um, it references Matthew 5. How many of you guys know Matthew five thirteen? The word fool, when it says professing to be wise, they become fools. The word fool literally means to be like salt that has lost its strength or flavor. How many of you guys know in Matthew five fourteen? he speaks about the church being a city set upon a hill, 
and a light to all peoples. He speaks about the, the church being a salt and light in society. But if salt loses its fa- flavor, what is it good for? It's this understanding that when we depart from the place of worship, we become foolish. We make foolish decisions and we waste our life in foolish places. And the church loses its salt and light. But if the church will return to the posture of worship, no grand scheme, no grand organization, but simply the value of the presence of God, that's where salt actually remains salty and able to preserve society and to be a quality in the midst of darkness. It's where the church is restored to a place of light. And so let's just pray for the posture of our hearts as people, but also the Church of America as far as where we are at this hour in time. God, we come before you, God, and we recognize, Lord, that there truly is, Lord, a crisis in our understanding of worship. God, that in many ways, Lord, our society is so superficial. God, so much is about um, the presentation and what is seen to the eyes of man. But Lord, that you see the inward places of our heart. And God, you long for us to be people that have hearts that are after you. Lord, you long to deliver us from lukewarm, half-hearted hearts. Lord, that you don't want us in that vain existence, Father, where... Lord, we approach you with our mouths, but our hearts are far from you. Lord, you desire hearts that are alive in love. And we declare before you today, God, that we were created for your presence. God, we were created for your glory. Lord, we were created to manifest and declare your worth with our lives. And so, God, we ask that any place that we are not walking in that rightful created order, God, of what you have called us into, God, we ask today, Father, that you would remove blindness from our eyes, God. Lord, we ask, Father, that we would even today, God, that we would position and posture our hearts before you to encounter you afresh and anew, Father. God, I ask, Lord, that you would deliver us as people from being bored and disconnected. And God, we ask that instead, Father, that you truly would strike our hearts, Lord, with awe and wonder once again. Lord, that even as the 24 elders, God, as they they worship, as they fall prostrate before you, God, we ask, Lord, that everything in our lives, Lord, that is not bowed low before you, but God, instead, Lord, we have lifted it high and even exalted it above you. Lord, we ask that everything in our lives would truly be brought down low in a posture of adoration and in worship. God, we ask, Lord, that even now, God, that you would reveal to us anything that we hold more dear than you. God, anything that we desire more than you. God, anything that we crave, Lord, more than you. The word of God says, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all of these things will be added. The beauty is, is as we seek him, that he is able to add whatever he desires. And he adds with abundance. But we violate his kingdom when instead of seeking him, we seek other things before and instead and above him. So God, we ask, Lord, for an alignment of our hearts today, Father, that we truly would seek you above all else. Lord, I ask, Lord, that any person under the sound of my voice, Father, that has had a a wrong mindset or even a distorted perception of what it is to seek you, as somehow uh, they don't want to enter into striving, 
or works. Father, I ask, Father, that we as a young generation would understand the beauty of the discipline of prayer. Lord, that as we continually present ourselves before you, we are declaring that we long to be people of encounter. We long to be people that look upon you and receive impartation from you. We just want to, as we close out with this song, if there's anybody, and like I said, there's no shame or condemnation. I feel like this is a posture I continually take in my life when I become aware that my heart is not living encounter with Jesus. It's just simply that you realign it and you reposition and you make room. You make time for him. If there's anybody that wants prayer here today specifically, and you know that the Lord is calling you into a place of encounter and making room and space and time, to be with him, that you'd value his presence above all else. We just want to pray for you. If there's anybody that needs prayer for healing, we definitely want to close out and pray for anyone that needs healing. But you're more than welcome to come join us here at the front. And we're going to close out with a song. And you're officially dismissed.